0: Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters.
1: Hi, welcome to Therapist Uncensored. This is episode 75. I'm Ann Kelly and my co-host Sue Marriott and I are currently working on season three. We think it's going to be fabulous and in that endeavor... We are taking some time, so we're going to be replaying some of our most popular episodes, especially on topics that we feel are so pertinent to our overall message on this podcast of spreading security inside us, between us, and in our community. So to that end, today's episode couldn't be more perfect. It is with Dr. Dan Siegel, who is really the father of interpersonal neurobiology, and if you don't know what interpersonal neurobiology is, you will by the end of this episode and it will matter to you. Sue Marriott and by the way, Patty Allwell does this interview. Patty Allwell is our co-host in our first season. So she's no longer on the podcast, but we loved having her for our first season and she's on this episode. So you'll enjoy that. And Dan Siegel is basically an international acclaimed author of so many books that we couldn't even list his more recent book mind a journey to the heart of being human is something that's really on his mind in this podcast so you will hear about that because he's really talking about the current political and international and climate crisis that we seem to be in worldwide and talk about the high potential in the state of threat to live in fear and alarm in our bodies and how much that can be a detriment to us as individuals, our relationships, as well as our community. In this episode, Dr. Siegel talks about transforming this time to be a chance for more human connection. So it's really a timely piece and he really gives some beautiful insights that I think you're going to really enjoy. For those of you, that that name is familiar, but that book isn't. You might think she he also does some of one of the best parenting books that I recommend. I think Sue does too. And that is Parenting from the Inside Out. Love that book. No drama discipline. And that's a couple of just books that he's been able to accomplish or co-author. So I'm going to turn it over to the interview. They pick up. They've just basically invited Dan to just discuss what's on the top of his mind. So that's where we jump in.
2: We have been telling you that we were going to be interviewing Dr. Dan Siegel. And today is the day. We started the interview by inviting Dan to share what was on the top of mind for him as we embarked on the discussion.
0: Um, So in terms of me right now, first of all, it's great to be here with you, Sue and Patty, and it's great to remember that time when we were in person together in Austin. Uh, To be here right now on the podcast, I would just say, you know, there's been so much um, uh, communication Uh, that I've received either directly or just in the general news uh, of how the world is doing, that I guess I'm just filled with a feeling of uh, sort of being a little uh, sad and a little uh, enthusiastic and hopeful all at the same time. So I went for a walk with my dog and his beautiful... uh, Mountains we have just outside of Santa Monica, and did some meditation up there. and you know, was looking at the trees and the bushes and the wildlife that were there, and just feeling how close you could feel to nature, but how distant we often feel. and um, uh, i've I've been reading a book called Sapiens, and so I'm filled with uh, the beginning of that book, which is kind of about our evolutionary history as a species. And uh, so I was just feeling kind of sad about, you know, that our evolution has been so violent, you know, that we killed all of our close, not just cousins, but even brothers and sisters, and even, you know, continue to do that as a species. So anyway, if I, I said, if there's anything, it's not so much what's going on in my family or anything like that, but it's more on the large global and historical context and um, I was talking with some folks who are doing a big project in Baltimore where I've been doing some uh, work um, just about all the violence that's there and how to try to really bring um, community together and give people across the whole socioeconomic status a uh, just a way to feel a- a belonging and to kind of deal directly with a lot of these um, I think very painful realities of our human evolution. So uh, on the one hand, that's part of me is filled with the heaviness of that. And, you know, all the things that have been going on in these last few weeks, you know, with the world, uh, but also thinking, how can we use these moments of challenge and politics and economics and climate change to do what one of the directors of, um, the World Health Organization's departments um, of public health, uh, Maria Nira, uh says, you know, while, you know, you can look at climate change challenges as uh, really uh, horrible crises, which of course in some ways they are, they're also an opportunity to see how to improve human health. So I see the current situation as a moment to do what Arthur Zions calls, try to, um, Uh, empower people with something called pervasive leadership, how to give individuals the knowledge and not just the information, but the transformation to really take integration, you know, the idea of creating more kindness and compassion in the world, and, you know, um, living that, not just talking about it, but actually living it. So anyway, that's a lot to cover, (laughs) but you, you asked me, so that's kind of what my morning's been like. <laughs> so it's yeah. pleasure to be here. But that's it. those are the those are the things I've been um, sitting with.
2: Well, and it's a great lead into your book. I heard you had some really good news today that you're going to be on the New York Times Science list. Yeah,
0: yeah, that was great news because uh, it's a pretty deep and um, you know nothing left out book. So it wasn't like a book I tried to make for popular, uh, you know, consumption. So I was very happy to hear that enough people were interested enough to give it a try that it got on the New York Times science extended list. So that was great. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's especially wonderful because the way things tend to work is, you know, if someone sees that on a sign or on a cover of the book, or then they'll say, oh, well, maybe I'll think about reading it. So it made me feel like the book would be just... A little more accessible perhaps because of that so that's that's it's a good feeling to know something will support it yeah that's great news interpersonal neurobiology is both a set of information but also a kind of it is a kind of journey that we we're all on together so um I, i i i love the name of the beginning of it, especially in the interpersonal part, because it's the idea that the inter is something between us, the personal is something within us, and if I had to do a quick elevator speech about the mind book, it's, it's really a book, The Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human book, is uh, really trying to focus on how one thing, the mind, can be both within us and between us. So it takes the word interpersonal, really, and looks at how the mind can be in these seeming two places but in the end you know they're just one place uh and that's why like when i was sitting with the breeze uh, my dog next to me just feeling the sun and just noticing the trees kind of waving back and forth in the breeze you know i could feel that you know this this body that we get to be born in is um is just a temporary part of a much larger identity we have, and to feel that is the part of the betweenness, you know, of what the mind is. So, interpersonal neurobiology—the neurobiology, neurobiology word—is just the idea of science, you know. So we take all the sciences and combine them into one framework, and you know, it sounds so um, like uh, sophisticated, um, but the 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 thing that I think you probably know at Austin and Connection is you know it's actually quite simple uh... and though there's you know a lot to to take in when you combine math and physics and chemistry biology psychology sociology anthropology linguistics and put them all together in the end the message you get is actually quite simple and this is what i think makes it so exciting so you can apply it in psychotherapy in parenting in education in organizational functioning and meditation um, it's so amazing that it's uh it has these applications for informing people and then letting the people be empowered themselves in whatever those settings to take it for their own so uh whether it's i was teaching um two weeks ago right before the election um at a meditation uh retreat for three days with matthieu ricard and he asked me to teach in uh some of this stuff, and so I was teaching an interpersonal neurobiology view of consciousness, you know, and Or you could teach um, to this group in Baltimore where we had, you know, 600 people who were from all walks of the community gathering together. we had been having dinners together and had to think about what our identity is and Or you could be talking to scientists like I did just the other day at UC Santa Barbara, you know, where uh, You want to talk about what is the relationship mind and brain and how does consciousness fit into all that so It's just really exciting um, to be on a journey with all of you.
2: You know, it's interesting that you brought up identity because I loved the story in the book about your horse ride in Mexico and the fall that gave you that interesting insight into the sort of two parts of yourself. Do you want to expand a little on that?
0: Sure. So, yeah, I mean... And this is part of, you know, when I, when I was deciding to choose this topic for the mind book, you know, the, when, when you write a book, it was always the question like, well, how am I going to write this book? I, I got the topic, but like, what, what's the process? So I wanted the book to be very relational. And I felt like to talk about this issue of my horse accident, to, to just put that out of context um, and just say, oh, I had a horse accident blah, 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 and here's what my experience was. I felt the whole book needed to be um, inviting the reader into a kind of deep conversation about the fact that we do have subjective experience. And there was this kind of hilarious but also sad review of the book that came out, and the first sentence says something like, Siegel believes subjective experience is important in his book Mind. And now the, the next sentence is, neuroscience has proven that subjective experience doesn't exist (laughs) And, and i thought wow wow what what person actually believes that subjective experience doesn't exist and then even if they believed it do they really think they would think that neuroscience has proven that it doesn't exist which it hasn't so you know there is this whole thing about objective science where you can take a stance and say you know I've got to measure everything and observe everything and usually quantify things. And, you know, so science tries to do that. And I'm trained as a scientist. Believe me, I know how to do that kind of stuff. So I felt for the book, if we're talking about the mind, that it had to be a book where I had to be present in my own subjective experience to invite the reader to explore hers, you know, or his and to honor that, you know, and so... Before I ever wrote a single word of the book, I felt, you know, I'd have to take the risk of having each chapter be leading off with subjective experience to, you know, make it uh, a, 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 an invitation to show that that's real and ask the reader, what's their subjective experience. So, but I know when you when you do that, it's always risky because people can say, oh, you're. Writing a memoir, or you're writing whatever, which is not a memoir. I mean, it's not about my parents or anything of my family, it's nothing like that. Well,
2: it. I, I felt like it, it, by giving your own personal examples, you really gave concrete examples that made it much easier to understand the book. I oh, thought. I'm
0: so happy to hear that, Patty. And because uh, it's a risky thing when you do that, you know, you, you feel much more vulnerable. And I know when I turned in the manuscript of my daughter helped me with this, uh, for the first time ever, I started. Losing sleep I couldn't sleep at. And it was right Oof. the day I pressed send on the manuscript. And, you know, and I think it's because of the vulnerability I felt. But So in terms of your question about this horse accident, you know, um, this was a time when I was uh, almost 20 years old. And I was uh, working for the World Health Organization in Mexico studying folk healers. And I had to go on an assignment uh, up this um, this mountain ridge to go down into this Place where in called Wa'utla, where there was one of the uh, most renowned folk healers was there, and I was interviewing all of them in the region. Anyway, so one morning when I went with two of my colleagues, actually one young boy who lived in the house I was living in, and um, a colleague of mine with the World Health Organization, we were going up um, this path, and I'm a pretty good horse rider, but unfortunately I forgot the lesson that um, I don't even remember learning, actually. You know, after you're riding for a minute or two, you're supposed to get off your horse and tighten the saddle because very sophisticated horses will float their abdomen up with air so that the saddle won't be so tight when they start walking, you know. Anyway, so the bottom line is this happened and the saddle got loose and at a full gallop, you know, the the, uh, saddle slipped and, you know, went to the horse's belly And my feet stayed in the stirrup, so I was dragged for a long, long way. And uh, um, it was pretty terrifying. I destroyed my face and um, lost my teeth and broke my nose and all sorts of things. And anyway, but the biggest thing in terms of the book wasn't all that stuff, uh, you know. But it was um, that I I, I had what you could call basically transient, because it was temporary, but we didn't know it at the time, Global meaning it was kind of total amnesia. I had no idea who I was. Um, And that can happen from, you know, having your head banged on rocks for about 100 yards, you know, as a a scared horse is running at full speed. Anyway, they thought I was dead, but I wasn't dead. They thought I had broken my neck, you know, given you can imagine what it looked like to the others, but I hadn't broken my neck. So, um, but I did lose my identity. So the strange thing was... um, before this was about a day um, I was wide awake you know and I was uh, I remember it I mean that's the strange thing I mean um, so uh, I was wide awake so things like giving me a glass of water um, I, I wouldn't know how to say the word glass or watering like that but you know they give me a glass of water and it was like this magical wild experience of light shimmering and holding this cool thing on my fingers and just sort of kind of blissing out on this kind of cool feeling and then the water kind of shimmering and then it goes in your mouth and I didn't have teeth, but I mean, you know, just passed through all those, uh, whatever, you know, whatever was left there teeth. And, um, so.
3: Like you were a child, just kind of seeing things. Exactly. It was
0: totally child mind. Exactly. And, You know, what was magical about it was as my identity came back uh, after the 24 hours, um, things stopped being so um, vivid. They stopped being so crystalline. And, you know, uh, I don't, I've never had the experience of using hallucinogens, but people who have have told me, you know, oh, it sounds like you're on this drug or that drug. And, you know, Mm -hmm. which, which maybe creates that same neurological impediments that I had Um, but the most important thing for me was besides the wild ride of sensory experience was the idea that if knocking your head around could literally knock out your sense of a personal identity but you were wide awake and aware maybe even more awake and aware then what did I what does identity do to our awakeness to our awareness and So when I use phrases like, you know, your awareness or or awaken your mind, it's the idea that there is this level of identity, this level of reality, this level of experience beneath identity. And in many ways, it relates to the idea that, you know, there's something called the burden of expertise, which is that the more experience and knowledge you attain.
3: Totally get that
0: the less you see. Yes. that's, That's the weird thing. So that's, that's what that chapter was about. Like, who are we? And, you know, if you could knock identity out, well, you know, what is your identity beneath that? And yeah, there's some amazing things that you can talk about, about that. It
3: makes me think of, uh, actually an example you had used before of even just a dog and that we see a dog, but that if you can see a tail and fur and ears and shadow, you know what I mean? Like, Exactly. Um, it's, it's rediscovering and um, you, you know the way that I think of that is like that's a way to fall in love again if you can totally. do that with your partner totally.
0: um, I, I, I think that's exactly right and you know this morning I was with my dog and, and up just feeling the breeze and watching the leaves rustle and the wind and this big beautiful canyon you know I could and, and you can learn to do this you know you can drop beneath words like tree, wind, breeze, oh, isn't this great, you know, all that kind of witnessing chatter. But you can train yourself to drop into this, you know, I call it the hub of the mind, this wheel, you know. But you can you can train yourself to have life become much more vibrant. And, and that's where, you know, for me, as a clinician, educator, science person, and just person on the planet, I really wanted to understand how we could understand it and then how we could create more of that um, vitality in life, you know.
3: Well, and, you know, you bring up earlier, you had mentioned the election and um, the national conversation right now. And you know, most of what I hear you teach about is building compassion and kindness and how do we teach that in our educational systems with kids and uh, build those circuits in our neural networks. And how do we heal from this? How do we stop the damage? How do we, just, do you have thoughts?
0: Yeah, Um, it's a great question, Sue. And I, um, you know, I I, I do believe very deeply that... um, it's important to empower each individual to um, have the strength in, within herself or himself to, uh, you know, really see what values in life are important and um, in a way develop a kind of spaciousness beneath the all the informational input we get from, you know, the news and from internet sources and social media and all those things. And, uh, you know, especially for the young generation that are so externally focused, I think it's really vitally important. So, um, in terms of integration and all of that, um, I find it helpful, uh, and I remember I did a a, a podcast right before the election, where what we talked about was, you know, this, uh, this value of understanding all the different layers of our experience. And this one particular layer that I talked about, I'll talk about here, because I think it relates to what we need to understand about the planet, which is, you know, we were born into a body, and in that body there's all sorts of evolutionary propensities that this body we're born into has. Now we have a mind <laughs> that's not the same as the body. It is influenced by the body, including its brain. But luckily, it's it's something that I believe, and that's why I wrote the book Mind. That it isn't just the same as brain activity. Now, just putting that on the side for a moment. Even if it is completely dependent on the brain, the hierarchical level, a more complex level of energy information flow from which the mind is arising, is something that can turn back and shape the brain itself. And that becomes really important when we look at this evolutionary reality, which is, as I was mentioning uh, about in the Sapiens book, you can see this, but you just look at our studies of what's called um, mortality salience, or... Uh, terror management studies. What, what we, what we know is that we've evolved to have in our brain this focus on evaluating or assessing who is in the in group that are people that are our kin or that are like us, and then who are the people in our out group. So in the Sapiens book, you know, the, the way they look at this is our history not so long ago is that we became part of being human about two million years ago and there were a number of human species running around. So mm-hmm. so different genus of Homo, which is the human part. Now, usually animals of uh, the same genus but different species cannot mate. But there's evidence now, in 2010 we have evidence that in fact Some Homo sapiens, or modern human beings, in fact did mate with different groups of other genuses so that some people have, for example, the DNA of Neanderthals in in their uh, systems and other people don't. And people in other countries have other genuses, not the Neanderthals. So um, this is an important... That's
3: the best explanation I've heard so
0: So, far. So this is just important to... So, okay, so that's one thing. But then those other genuses as of, uh, I think, about 30,000 years ago, they're all gone. Now, there's two theories. We we may have completely mated with them and intermingled, but then you would, you would imagine that uh, there'd be much more, a higher percentage. It's only about 1%, 2%. Or in, in Australia, it's about 6%. Um, of the DNA would be more... You know uh, of the other groups, but maybe not. So that's one theory: is we just mated with everybody; everyone had this massive cross-genus, you know, I mean, not cross cross-species, uh, you know, mating, and then we were all one Homo sapiens, and the others disappeared. Um, but the other theory is that you know we wiped out people not like us. But in any event, as of about you know 30,000 years ago, well, 70,000 years ago, something happened where Homo sapiens started leaving Africa because they came from the eastern side of Africa and then down to the south of South Africa and Namibia, where actually I, I was there just recently interviewing people about their mind-sight abilities because they're the ancestors of our probably original uh, grandparents, if you will. homo sapiens so they about seventy thousand years ago some left and they started going all around the place but when they did that there was a lot of change in the environment and we now know that this the way we survived was to figure out who is in your in group and who's in your out group and so this survival based way we evolved with our Genetic propensities, then informing how the brain circuitry is developing, is deep, deep, deep in our history for literally tens of thousands of years. Um, so, in the last ten thousand years, you know, we have the all sorts of things are, are evolving, and 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 we're we're built with these practices. I mean, even to the point where I was talking to Steve Swami, who's a monkey researcher, where probably for fifty million years, our Primate cousins have demonstrated also that they can turn on outgroup family members, even in the same troop, and completely destroy them. Um, so it isn't just for two million years, and it's not just for you know the seventy thousand years that Homo sapiens were running around the planet, going everywhere. But it looks like it may be fifty million years. So the bottom line, whatever the number is, it's been a long.
3: It's deeply embedded. Deeply,
0: deeply embedded in our in our primate, let's just put it there, primate history. so
3: And so, and just to be clear, I think some of what you're taught, just for our, our listeners, is this capacity for mindsight and empathy and compassion that we can have, but that we can turn off exactly. um, when we are not recognizing someone as one of us and when they are an other. And there are some of, you know... Uh, that can be a willful act or even uh, an act that we're not aware of doing, but we just aren't able to res- have resonance with someone, and so we turn off uh, that, capac- that 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 uh, sense of empathy. and exactly.
0: So Sue, so this is exactly right that at the at one time, you know we evolved uh, on the one hand, we've evolved um, for lots of reasons, but they involved us being upright and not on all fours. They involved the fact that um, the brain of the genus Homo, that is us humans, was just much, much, much bigger than other uh, apes, um, and that this bigger brain meant that if the woman was going to survive when this baby came out, the baby had to come out premature. Really, you know, not able to take care of herself like a guinea pig that comes out just starts eating grass pretty much right away. Um, you know, you you have this. Uh, or maybe not eating grass, but running around, Um, you have this uh, history then of this um, little baby you have to take care of, where the brain is using up so much energy that you have to collaborate to take care of a baby. It takes a village, you know? So then we had to collaborate to have our young survive. And now this is over, like, you know, a long, long history. So at least, whether it's our homo, group, which is about 2 million years old, or Homo sapiens, which are at least, you know, 70,000 years old, it's probably in, in its long existence, 200,000 years, but you have this collaboration. So on the one hand, we collaborate with people that we deem in our in-group. They could be our family members, they could be our tribe members, they could be people in our cave, they could be people nowadays in our religion, and, and then we do have this capacity, too, so just like you're saying... Where, on the one hand, we have mind-sight skills to see the mind of another who's in our in-group and say, what does that person need? How can I give them what they need? How can I take care of their baby? How can we really collaborate? How can we be connected? Beautiful. Really, really beautiful. But at the same time, we also have this out-group response, which is to, as you're saying, shut off the mind-sight circuitry, see the other and Elizabeth Lesser calls this othering, you know, this othering process shuts off mind-sight circuits. Literally, it says, that is just dirt, and I want to sweep the dirt from my little hut here. Build a wall away from and And, and you, you, you have this unbelievable history of, of Homo sapiens being filled with genocide, that, that we as a species will take out group people don't see that they have a mind a subjective experience and wipe them out mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. now here's the thing about the the
3: Where's, is there hope uh
0: <laughs> well i think there is hope but but let's talk about the not so hopeful thing the terror management studies show just so we know the facts these are studies where you show like a subliminal photograph like less than 250 milliseconds to somebody and so They don't know consciously they've seen it. But if it's a photograph of, let's say, a gun pointing at you or a terrible car accident, or it's a photograph like of a meadow or people smiling and holding hands, this this Mm is a control group, right? So people don't know what they saw, but you show it to them. When you've induced a state of terror, and they don't know why, they will treat in-group people in a much kinder way and out-group people in a much more hostile way, more harsher way. And I think that's what's been happening, not just in the United States, but it's happening through Europe, it explains Brexit, it explains what's going on with the horrible things happening everywhere, even in in Africa, uh, in parts of Asia now. I mean, it's just, you know, the impending genocides that are all around this country are just, they're not just random, it isn't just, these aren't bad people, these are human beings, these are homo sapiens. Scared people. That are are scared, right? And I'm not trying to defend them, but... So, you say, what do we do to rise above it? You know, we have to, and this is where interpersonal neurobiology comes in, when we're able to see the mind as not just brain activity, what it gives us as educators, clinicians, people who run organizations, people who run countries, people who are, you know, in the position to raise children with this, it allows you to have the mind say the following thing. My nervous system is making me treat this person as an out-group member with more hostility. But this goes against my larger values that all human beings, in fact, all living beings, need to be treated with deep respect, just like I would treat the in-group. So I'm going to do a practice, and you know, mindfulness practices, for example, have been shown to decrease implicit racial bias, um, doing all sorts of compassion training, allows you to rise above your brain's initial proclivity and use your mind to actually change the way your brain ultimately will carry out behavior, even if you have an initial response, oh, that person's in the out group and I don't see their mind, you can actually rise above that.
2: Oh. That's really um, interesting. And I think your book
3: too... Relieving. <laughs> yeah,
2: is is really helpful because... Especially the parts on integration. Mm-hmm. Talk about the drive towards wellness and the drive towards health and the sort of self organizing principles of our mind. Do you want to expand on that a little? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, thanks, Patty. The, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly possible to get doom and gloomy and, and just say, wow, this is pretty bad. We have pretty horrible evolutionary history and my god things are getting just more intense so what's the point i don't feel that way i feel very hopeful and very optimistic and i i know there's a lot of work for all of us to do and this is why the idea from arthur zions of um you know pervasive leadership that everybody has the ability to be empowered to take leadership here so when you think about the mind um and and you're pointing out kind of the um the proposal that if you see the mind as this emergent self-organizing aspect of a complex system. Now that's just for math. I know people don't like math, but you know, this is where you turn to say, how is what happens within us connected to what happens between us? So for me, the only way to do that was to turn to complex systems and to look then at one aspect of these complex systems, which are the emergent processes, which include self-organization. So then you say, well. A self-organizing emergent process that's both embodied and relational may be what the mind is, but then what does it do? So then you say, well, what it does is it regulates energy and information flow, and that's also where it's arising from. That's the emergent part, but then it turns back and regulates that from which it arose. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's scientifically grounded. And then you say, well, how do I optimize self-organization? And then you come up with this absolutely... Um, Simple but solidly scientific view which is that when you've impaired self-organization you go to chaos or rigidity and when you optimize self-organization you go to harmony. You go to this, you know, things you two know about flexibility, adaptability, F.A. C is coherence which is a math term for resilience basically. Uh, energized and stable it spells the word faces and so you get this incredible definition of well-being, faces, flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. It's like that optimal flow of a river that comes, you say, well, how? How do I make self-organization become optimal? And then it becomes really simple again. You differentiate, you have different parts of a system become specialized or different. That's what differentiate means. And then you connect them, you link them. So, Linking differentiated parts of a system is what we're going to call integration. Mathematicians don't use the term, but we can use that term. So integration is where you honor differences and you promote linkages and it creates, we're going to say, well-being. So the exciting thing about that definition for our political times is you can say a government should be promoting honoring of differences across gender, across sexual orientation, across uh, sexual identity, across races, across religions, um, and then honoring those differences and promoting respectful, compassionate communication—that would be an integrated way a civilization can operate. And I, I believe very deeply it is possible to do that. You know, it's. It's a really simple set of guidelines, if you will. If you just, if you use integration as your starting place, you can look at, let's say, um, the racial violence that's been going on in this country as part of the chaos that's been happening. You can look at the rigid polarity of political views that happen even within families as a rigidity. And we are in a state of impaired self-organization as a society in many, many places. Uh, and what we want to do is look at what is not integrated in our society, and you can kind of see it. <laughs> there isn't much honoring of differences, and there isn't much linkage through compassionate communication. So,
3: Well, and it's actually interesting because when you try to speak to um, honoring difference and things like that, you right now what is... The dominant culture is to have that voice be shamed and belittled and humiliated. That softer compassion, um, so that so, poses its own unique challenges. But it, yeah. it also even happens, I think, internally with the not left and right. I know is too simple, but the the system of um, you know what what is in, in simple terms the left brain dominating the. The right brain process that we sort of have that nationally as well
0: yeah you know i think uh, Sue, so i think that's a it's a really good and complex point you're making and it's worth maybe trying to tease that apart because um you know we live in very challenging times i mean we really do uh to put it simply there's too many human beings on the planet Um, And we've created a society, modern society, based on consumerism that uh, is, it's basically its foundations are continued growth, production and consumption. uh, And if there isn't continued growth, there's economic collapse. So, so I don't want to get, you know, us all feeling down and uh, but but there's a fundamental problem with the way the word profit, I mean, P-R-O-F-I-T, profit has been defined um, because it's based on continually um, taking resources from the planet, turning them into junk, having people want the junk, and then the junk breaks apart, so you have to buy more junk. And then, basically, in modern society, the idea is, well, the way I achieve a sense of happiness is I get as much junk as I can and then you get 100 units of junk and you feel unhappy and meaningless So then you say, well, probably I need 500 units of junk. You a stru- billion
3: units of junk. Yeah, and then you get
0: a billion units. So you can see that there's, there's just a basic fatal flaw in the structure of modern views on profit. And also there's a fatal flaw, I think, that's been around for 2,500 years since the time of Hippocrates on defining the self as coming from the mind, of course, which in the Hippocrates' view 2,500 years ago was only from the brain. And modern psychology with William James perpetuated that view, the mind is just from the brain. And so the outcome of that view on modern science, for sure, but also the society, is that we're all separate. Mm-hmm. And 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 when you're all separate basically you I think what happens is it is so wrong. I mean Einstein called it an optical delusion, not even an illusion, but an optical delusion of consciousness, a psychotic belief. And I, you know, I really feel the
3: separateness is the optical delusion. The
0: separateness that you are a completely separate being from other people or or other or nature or the universe. So I mean part of why I wrote the mind book was to say let's look at the scientific uh, view that is commonly held that mind is what brain does, and let 's see if maybe even though we 've held that view for twenty five hundred years, even though it 's politically incorrect let 's let 's actually question it and say if it 's not just brain activity, what might the mind be, and if the self comes from the mind, then what who are we you know and and as as you go through this scientific reasoning, and that 's why the book is not you know a self-help book or anything it can be helpful to yourself but it's it's more like a deep deep dive into you know who we are and what the mind is so when you get to that you say well an integrated self if that's what the mind is all about is self-organization then you say well you've got a me in a body but you've got a we in your connection to other people and the planet and to nature so how do you integrate a self and then it comes to the conclusion you know You don't get rid of the me, you know. You you cultivate an inner me, and so you can liberate yourself, for example, from in-group out-group distinctions. But at the same time, you also honor our connections as a we. And you know, in doing that, you know, you come up with this idea of we, you know, M W E. And what's been so moving for me, uh, going around the, the country, in fact, going around the world having the opportunity to meet with people in workshops and conferences. And I, I, I often end the, the talk with the idea of an integrated identityism a we, but it fights against what we've been told for 2,500 years, but we can, we can turn the course of cultural evolution around if we take a deep breath and say, you know something, the course we've been on in modern society fueled by the idea of a separate self as the mind is thought of as just brain activity fueled by a view of profit as only come from manufacturing and selling junk you know that there's a deeper kind of what the Greeks called eudaimonia uh, a life of meaning and connection and equanimity that doesn't come from producing and consuming junk you know Mm -hmm. but but that's the world we have so literally I mean, and this is going to be the challenge, and it's not going to just be a four-year term of one president or another. It's literally got to be a groundswell of pervasive leadership where people start living this way to another sense of reality, you know. And when I teach in high schools and I talk to the parents about how I understand they're so worried about whether a kid will have a job or not, or whether a kid will start Facebook, the next Facebook or not, or, you know, they just want the best for their child. They want to protect their little child as they get ready to launch out from high school. I said, but they've locked onto a number like an SAT score or a GPA or the the, the low level of acceptance rate to an elite college, and they believe falsely, but they believe that Somehow getting your kid to that school is going to guarantee anything, but it doesn't. And then I say to them, here's the problem. You've got a higher suicide rate now. You've got unbelievable stress and anxiety. And these kids who buy into that, they actually are being taught a complete lie. And it's a lethal lie. So, I mean, part of this whole interpersonal neurobiology, mindset stuff is to say, let's take a deep step back. Let's embrace the studies of anthropology you know let's look what margaret mead said you know that don't ever think a small group of people can't change the world because in fact it's the only thing that ever has and we have to embrace that anthropological wisdom and say cultural evolution is not based on genes it's based on memes you know ideas and so part of what i love being in in a member of a community the interpersonal neurobiology community is You know, we're not a form of therapy. We may inform therapy, but we're a way of understanding what it means to be human. And so in all these different avenues of human life, therapy, education, parenting, organizations, government, all that kind of stuff, we need to work together to have this science-based view of where cultural evolution might be able to go. And I'm actually really hopeful that we can start turning it around.
3: I really am. Well, I I love to hear the hope, and you know, as you're talking, I'm I'm thinking both you know the country and culturally, and I love your talk of of ancient history, um, but I'm also thinking at the couples level and and um, you know integration and this hope and the we related to. Uh, people's individual lives and the sort of just the practical so when you're mad at your husband being able to and, and and if he were shaming to you um you know that uh being able to ground yourself first and be less concerned with what he's doing and i'm just sort of trying to do a fast translation of how i'm interpreting it which is like going inward first and getting getting that for yourself to then be able to move back out um, and make those connections to the world. But, uh,
0: well, Sue, you know, I think that's really true. I, you know, um, in our society, modern society, we, we do have this big emphasis on a separate self. So then when you look at couples therapy you say, well, here's person A and person B, and they've gotten together as a couple. So their A is in relationship to B, B is in relationship to A and all that stuff so what i hear you saying and i feel so strongly too about it is for couples therapy where's the a b you know where's the we right that emerges and that joining you know is um it's not something that's encouraged so much you know and and i think Letting go, and you know, this comes back to you know, Patty, when you asked about the horse accident. You know, letting go of the separate identity being only what you have. Of course, you have a body, and your body's got about a hundred years. Of course, you have a body which had an attachment history that you should make sense of in your coherent adult attachment interview, and of course, you have a body that you should sleep well and feed well and exercise well. Yes, yes, yes. So, we're not saying there's no separate self. We're saying. There isn't an only separate self. That's the key thing. And so, so we want to make sure we hold on to the me. The me is really important. But then you say, well, what's it like to join? Mm-hmm. You know, and lose, I'll say it in the extreme form, you know, control. To mm-hmm. lose, you know, because when you're a we, when you're part of a we, you're not the captain anymore. You know, you're, you're a passenger on a, what can be an absolutely magnificent ride, or if you're terrified of not being in control, you just avoid joining, you know. And so part of what I hear you saying, Sue, is that, you know, in couples therapy, if you look at the deep nature of integration, yes, each member of the couple needs to be honored. Yes, we want them to learn to speak from the heart about what they need for sure, and, Mm -hmm. not instead, but and, the experience of the we of that couple, in addition to the two me's that are there, Mm -hmm. needs to be, if it's not there, um, nurtured to grow. Um, And, and and, what's that?
2: I wonder, Dan, I think I've heard you say that we heal in relationships. Yeah. And so the only way forward is actually leveraging our relationships for well-being
0: yeah I think I think that's true and whether it's in couples therapy like we're talking about or the larger issues of um, cultural change you know we need to be in community I think there's this uh, you know uh, there's a deep healing patty as you're you're talking about it that and support that's gonna come from us being in community. So whether it's reaching out to people and, and meeting with them regularly or you know, this there's a group that, that I was speaking to in Baltimore called Thread, Thread.org. Just check out what they do. They they have people who don't know each other have dinner together. You know, ten people who never met each other had dinner together. You know, and and then I, you know, I met with them as a large group, all the groups that had, had dinner with each other. And it was so beautiful because you realize people are just people.
3: That's a really, mean, that's a really cool idea to mix it up like that.
0: Yeah. I mean you could start doing that in Austin. You could do it in any town. Mm-hmm. And and listen, you can start living this right now because you know you hear that you-
3: audience? Wherever you are, wherever you're listening in whichever country or state that you're listening that you could create your own your own uh, your own thread. Your <laughs>
0: Yeah, you can thread it together and go to thread.org and see exactly. the beautiful. And we'll put it in
3: the show notes.
0: Yeah, and you know what's so exciting about it, and this is what I, I said to the folks in Baltimore, you know, they inspired me so much. You know, it is the idea of honoring differences and promoting these linkages in our relationships with each other. And the sad thing is, we live in a society, we get trained at home, we get trained in school, we get trained by society and science even. To think that we're all separate, but in fact, belonging is what we all have a longing for. and And so we we can turn this around. I mean, i I'm not just being like a, a, you know overly optimistic. I really think that there's some very, very important, maybe challenging moves to make in our daily lives that can start having people feel this difference. When you look at another person, And you realize that person is a manifestation of you. You know, and it's like what I said at a high school recently, you know, where there's all this competition there has been a lot of suicides, so sad. Um, And I said, look, you know, if you're like a candle and there's a candle to your right and a candle to your left and neither of those candles is lit and you lean over to the candle on your right and you light that candle and then you straighten yourself up and then you lean over to the candle on your left, and you light up that candle. I said, what has it taken away from your flame to light up other candles? And the audience says, nothing. I said, and what does it do? And they said, it brightens the world. And that's, what we, that's the way we can live.
3: And it's such a beautiful, I mean, that's exactly right. And I think about where people get stuck, because you talked earlier about threat and then the feeling of loss of control when we move from me to we. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think about uh, folks that are in a place of privilege and having to give, uh, even having to recognize um, entitlements and privilege and all the things that they have to give up. You know, then the Jaws music is playing and there's something wrong and, You know, there's not a feeling of if I lean over, I'm just going to share something that I have freely. There's probably I think there's more feeling of I will lose my light, which adds to the threat. And I think um, and then by them being threatened and giving off threat, then they threaten other people. Right. And so it's more of they growl and then they get growls. So I like what you're saying in the sense that if we can if we can under if that's part of what's happening is just that people are feeling threatened and they need to feel safer and then we can use our candlelight to reduce the people's anxiety and not see them as bad Um, like you said, seeing each person as a reflection of yourself that that can begin to be um, part of turning that tide is that
0: gist of yeah exactly and you know it is a different mindset, but um, oh, I think it's, it's going to be a perfect. win-win situation, you know. Everyone's going to benefit from that, and, you know, it is, it's part of why, you know, we, I encourage people to do this wheel of awareness of practice from, you know, they can get it, you know, just download it from our website or stream it, you know. You, you have people experience this kind of clarity of consciousness that allows the separate self to be respected, but opens you up to experiencing a very different way of uh, of sensing the world, not just even perceiving the world, of sensing it. And mm-hmm. and and um, so this is you know so we need to we need to support that inner awareness. Um, it can't just be done because someone told you to do it. <laughs> you know, so got inner awareness and. And uh, I, I just think together, you know, in interpersonal neurobiology, I think we've got, we've got the science grounded. I mean, and part of why I wrote Mind, the journey book, you know, is we as a community, you know, can just now see here's where the science, it says the mind is not just the single brain. The self is not just from your solo life. You are actually a part of something much larger than your skin encased body, you know, which is a pretty, from a science point of view, view pretty outrageous thing to say, but you know, from a brain science point of view at least. You know yes. but we embrace the wisdom of anthropology and sociology that may be looking in those ways. So that's fantastic. But then put those two together and say, how do you actually make a difference in the world? And that's, you know, really what we want to do in our field.
2: And that's a really optimistic view of what we can do
3: well it's it, yeah. i mean it, it concretely helps me and gives me something to bring to take to people around um a more compassionate understanding and it's something to do with this when there's someone actively threatening perhaps your family um or you know uh, that's in a position of power that is actively threatening um so that you don't just th- threaten back you know I and mean? so you're not just right. mirroring the threat but it it really provides a third option and that's what i was really getting at that it's like that's where the hope is is yeah. instead of threat threat there's there's a way of rising above it and and as you said sort of understanding what's going on in my body and then maybe perhaps the other person's body
0: exactly and seeing people even the position of power in the government you know they're they're human beings too and Maybe they haven't had the insights yet about uh, about this connectivity, but they have that potential inside of them and how we can bring that out in various ways. Uh, I think we can try to support um, the idea that we can bring positive changes into the world I, I, I think it's you know just a time of you know challenge and uh, bringing everything we've learned in interpersonal neurobiology and working together as a community that supports these basic human values and, and yeah. values of life i think uh, that's what we need to do
3: yeah it's a great message to bring forward um and and it fits kind of this whole idea of promoting security around the world and that's what we want to do is really promote secure relationships
0: absolutely totally
2: so dan thank you so much it's really been delightful to get to
0: talk oh to you. patty and sue thank you all right, thanks for listening. You will
1: find all sorts of references in our show notes to Dr. Dan Siegel's work and books. By the way, just going to www.therapistuncensored.com would be awesome because what's there and new for our season three is Speak Pipe. So you will see a little blue button. The minute you get on that site, it's a blue button. You push it and you can leave us a 90 second message that could be about this interview or it could be about any of our prior episodes or it could be about what you might desire to see in our third season you might even leave us a message that you could hear yourself live in the next season because we love hearing from our listeners so leave us a message and it, we'd love it if you would go to your favorite podcast player and give us a rate and a review. Those always mean a lot to us. Thanks, and we'll see you around the bin.
0: Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.